and welcome to episode 222 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paradin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with us soon is our esteemed co-host, Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Attack Submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore Submarine Squadron 3, and many other postings. Bill is currently doing a live news segment uh, covering the, uh, the the loss of the submersible that, that was out there looking at the Titanic. So he will join us uh, supposedly, hopefully, very, very soon. But if you're watching, you can clearly see that uh, with us again this week, and we are always very happy to have him, is historian extraordinaire John Parshall. John, how are you this fine morning? I am living my best life. That is awesome. That is awesome. How's the weather up there right now? Uh, not so much. Yeah, <laughs> weather advisories and yeah, yet more crummy uh, campfire air coming down from Canada as a result of the wildfires. But uh, yeah, we're hanging in. So nice. delighted to be here. It is hotter than fire down in the southeastern part of the United States right now. I can say that with 100% certainty, I assure you. Yeah. Miserable, miserable. But uh, before we get started, we want to ask you to like and subscribe to our channel on YouTube as it helps others find our show. We want to get the history to the masses. And if you want to help us do that, hit that like and subscribe button and like all the episodes that you watch. That will help the algorithm sort our stuff out and push it out to the people that haven't seen it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and it's it's the algorithm is a pain in the neck, but it, you know I don't even understand. I don't even want to even want to try yeah. and understand how it works. But they don't want you to understand how it works. You know, having having fought the SEO wars as a marketing flack in the software industry for a number of years, you know, it's they don't want you to know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah, very true. So back when we did the episode on New Guinea, uh, that one being Boonagona, which John was also a guest on uh, for that specific episode, I made mention of forgotten fronts, forgotten theaters, forgotten battles, whatever you want to call them. And while people will always squawk about their, how their relative service is forgotten on so-and-so island all day long, there are really, at least in my opinion, truly, honest to God, forgotten fronts. Forgotten for many reasons. The fighting wasn't as severe as somewhere like Tarawa, or the terrain wasn't as foreboding as, say, New Guinea, or the war just simply moved on. And honestly, to those who were on those supposed forgotten fronts, they are most certainly not forgotten. Never were and never will be. Uh, well, our today, our topic today definitely lives under the classification of forgotten. A great many of the events that form the nucleus of this campaign occurred at the same time or close to other events that carried far greater weight when it came to the prosecution of the war in, the, in both the Pacific and Europe. Regardless, it was a portion of the Pacific War that was important for many reasons that we are about to discuss, was home to some of the most vicious and inhospitable locales on Earth, had some of the most unpredictable and hellacious weather on the planet, and still does, and yet still held a strategic, theoretically, and moral value, a morale value, if only for a short while. The campaign we are referring to is known as the Thousand Mile War, that being, of course, the Aleutians. John, this was a, it truly was a forgotten front. You know, it really, really, yeah. really was. And, and there are some good reasons for that. And, you know, as I was sharing with you just before we got started here, I've, I've actually been up to the Aleutians. I've been up to Dutch Harbor uh, back in 2015, shooting a TV show having to do with Midway, actually, because the Aleutians are a component of that larger plan of campaign. And uh, I can tell you, yeah, it's it's an interesting place. Dutch Harbor is a very interesting place, uh, a gigantic 
labor camp for the fish industry now uh, and sort of has the a kind of most Eisley spaceport vibe about it uh, if you go there. So, yeah, a very, a very interesting location. Yeah, I've, I've never had the pleasure, and I'm not really sure after having heard you describe it and seeing images that I'd necessarily want to have the pleasure. Actually, I, I would like to go back. It was it was really? really, really quirky and interesting. And honestly, there's also a very good little World War II museum up there that talks about the things that we're about to talk about here for the, for the next little bit. Cool. Well, so... Why the Aleutians? You know, if you look at a map, I mean, they are way up there. They're they're strung out like a, you know, like a string of pearls. And, you know, they really don't. I mean, if you look at a map, they really don't have a whole heck of a lot of strategic value when you look at it in terms of the Pacific War. Yet the Japanese and the Americans both deemed them to at one point to have very significant strategic value. So. You know, the Japanese had set their sights in the Aleutians before they ever even attacked Pearl Harbor. That was one of the little, you know, pinpricks that they wanted to make. But in your estimation, John, why was the Aleutians even a target for the Japanese? Right. They looked at the islands. Uh, and and if, if you were to draw sort of a, a great circle route of shipping from, say, the West Coast to points in Vlad, you know, Vladivostok, uh, you know, the shipping routes all go up around that neck of the Wook world and they they looked at that island from an air power perspective as this is a series of bases that the americans could use against us to potentially be doing bombing raids against the northern part of japan and so from my reading um the japanese looked at their campaign uh in the Aleutians as primarily a way to forestall any sort of american offensive activity that was aimed towards the whole islands and you know, similarly, sim- similarly, the United States had had a had an eye on that area as well. You know, it, uh, Billy Mitchell actually called it one of the most strategic areas on Earth, which is highly, highly debatable. Right. But yeah, regardless, he carried a lot of sway in the pre-war world of the United States, and such as he did, the United States looked at it as a similarly strategic area. Prior to World War II, yeah. um, the proximity of the Aleutians and Alaska to the mainland to the Continental Forty Eight was is what gave it its strategic value. You know, and we'll get into that why, you know, the the, the shockwaves that the Japanese invasion sent through the American public later on when, when we get down to that discussion. Yeah. But you know, you and in, in our pre-recording notes, you had said something specifically about, <laughs> yeah. Choices, shall we say? Choices, right? Yeah, and were these good choices? Uh, you know, one of the points yeah. that I that I made uh, in Shattered Sword. You know, broadly speaking, both sides are just absolutely, <laughs> for want of a better word, smoking weed when it comes to you know thinking that the illusions are are a strategic avenue for anything. You know, as I said in the book that. And the archipelago is useless for mounting any sort of an offensive activity larger than the occasional narwhal hunt. Um, mm-hmm. it, the, the driving factor here is the weather. The weather is just so god-awful up here. Um, the average island in the Aleutians has rain 250 days out of the year. And the other days, even if it's not raining, it's probably cloudy. Kiska, I believe, has only six sunny days the entire year. 
The average wind speed is 30 miles an hour all the time. Um, there is often pea soup fog. The average temperature is about 40 degrees year round. Uh, they get these crazy things called willowaws. Uh, if you've ever been out to San Francisco and seen the mists rolling off the, the mountains around Sausalito and down into the bay, well, take that general effect up to a much colder locale and you get these 100 mile an hour pea soup fogs rolling off of the, the cold air up in the mountains, coming down and hitting that humid air down at the ocean. And these things can last for days. So the flying conditions are unbelievably bad. And the ground conditions likewise, I mean, you, you describe the islands as a string of pearls. When you actually fly down them in an airplane, and I was a geo major in college, and so the first thing I noticed was like, this is really a string of stratovolcanoes. This is an incredibly tectonically active area of the world. So it's just this line of volcanoes, which means that the terrain isn't super great either. This is tundra over volcanic ash. There's very little vegetation. There's no trees. Uh, when, when I was shooting that TV show up in Dutch, uh, we had the after uh, the after shoot party at a at a bar called the Norwegian Rat, uh, which again is just perfect for for Dutch Harbor. It's like my kind of joint. <laughs> oh my God, this place! I'll tell you some stories. Um, anyway, out back they were having a little bonfire. Well, there's no wood in the Aleutians, and so the bonfire was shipping pallets that they had broken up and were burning out the back there. So you know, there's no building materials. There's no way to dig in. It's rocks and and lichen and volcanic ash and miserable weather. That's that's the Aleutian Islands. And and we're, you're going to see uh, as we go through, as John and I go through this, and and Bill when he's when he's able to join us, the weather is a, a huge factor in literally every single thing that happens for both sides. Yeah, and, and I'm talking in 1942 and 1943. Yeah, and now that I mentioned 1942, which of course is when the Japanese invade the Illusions, you know there is, and I know you cover it in Shattered Sword, but Let's talk about it here. Yeah. There is a conception that the Aleutians was a diversion from Midway. Right. Da 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 da, which I personally, you know. And brother, wrong. it ain't true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. The, that myth of the Aleutians being a diversion was a sort of a feature of the immediate post war literature on the larger Midway campaign that, that came mm -hmm. out right after the war. Because I. I <laughs> to an extent, a lot of Americans looked at this operation like, well, what the hell were you thinking, guys, about, right. you know, going up here? Well, it must have been a diversion, you know, to lure the American carriers out. This isn't true. Um, if you look at the original Japanese battle plan, the Japanese intended to hit both Midway and Dutch Harbor on the same day with two separate carrier forces. Um, and obviously, in order for a diversion to be a diversion, if you're really trying to lure the Americans out, you would have needed to have initiated your attack against the Aleutians before. several days before to give the Americans time to react, raise steam, and, and start moving. Um, the reason that Nagumo ends up hitting Midway on the 4th of June and the Aleutians get attacked initially on the 3rd of June is because Nagumo could not provision his force back in Kure in time to actually meet his original sailing date. And so at these last session of war games on the 25th of May, 
uh, Nakuma lets it be known to Yamamoto and the others that, you know, sorry, we're not going to be able to make our sailing time tomorrow. We're going to have to push it a day. No one was happy about that, but that's an, that's what ended up happening, that Nagumo sailed a day, a day late. So anyway, so much for the diversion yeah. myth. It's a myth. Exactly. And I think that's what people need to understand, too, because I, I guarantee you we're going to get comments on that. And it's like there is no need to have a diversion when your main thrust is down south either. You know, if, you, if you're wanting to do harm with Kido, Kido Botai, why are you going to try and draw people up with, you know, a, a pittance of a, of a force compared to what was actually coming to Midway? I mean, it's it's yeah. pretty. Yeah, the, the, the whole illusions operation, frankly, got tacked on to the, the Midway battle plan. This was. Naval General Headquarters political quid pro quo for having lost the debate over strategy to Yamamoto. They basically said, well, okay, you can do your midway thing, but while you're doing that, you're also going to do the Aleutians at the same time because the Americans are going to be busy elsewhere. Here's a good opportunity for us just to do this land grab uh, while, while the Americans are fighting down south. So that's what's going on there. So who's in command on the Japanese side in 1942? It's 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 a gentleman named uh he's Vice Admiral uh Hosogaya Boshiro. Who who was he? What what kind of a cat was he? Honestly, uh th this is where your your Japanese Navy expert is going to tell you, I don't know as much about this guy, you know, and he does yeah. not go on to have a shining career and maybe that says something. But uh yeah, he is nevertheless the gentleman that is in charge of uh Daini Kitobutai, number two Kitobutai, which is essentially built around Carrier Division 4. Carrier Division 4 is not the rock stars. Uh, this is the recently commissioned converted carrier Junyo, uh, which was converted from an ocean liner. And then the older uh, medium-sized carrier Ryujo. Uh, Junyo... <laughs> Junyo is one of my favorite carriers to kind of beat up on uh, because she's a scow. I mean, her engines are notoriously unreliable. And this is the point of contention between me and Tony. Tony Tully has this real weak spot for Junyo and her sister, Hio, you know, that they gave yeoman service through the war. And we are going to see them throughout the war. Um, right. You know, they, they fight all the way up into the Battle of Philippine Sea. And Junyo is actually going to survive the war. Um, but from just a, a pure naval warship design standpoint, you know, just yeah. old, slow, cranky engines, not a super big air group. Um, Ryujo, likewise, uh, was one of those carriers that was built in the early 30s when people were still trying to figure out how is carrier warfare going to work. And so the Japanese were trying to cram a whole lot of aircraft into a tiny little uh, displacement uh by the time you get to world war ii she her elevators are too small to operate dive bombers so her air group is nothing but zeros and kates whose wings can can fold more compactly so she's kind of a weirdo ship too so yeah carrier division four gets sent up to the Aleutians to do their thing their air groups are not Super great. Uh, although, you know, as, as I mentioned to you previously, they do have some cats like Abe Zenji, who's mm -hmm. uh, on Junyo. He is a, a very good dive bomber pilot. And some of the aviators who 
uh, had been on Shokaku and Zuikaku during the Battle of Coral Sea, with both of those ships being out of commission, some of those aviators get sent to Carrier Division 4 on temporary duty. And so they're going to be uh, up here in the Aleutians as well. Yeah, Abe, he was, he was of course, one of the pilots that attacked Pearl Harbor. I think he was flying off Akagi during Pearl Harbor, right. Right, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he was and, a- and lived forever and wrote a great deal about the Pacific War. Um, so, yeah, a, an interesting guy. Yeah, consummate gentleman, too. I met him yeah. a couple times. He was, he was, yeah, he was an incredibly nice, very kind, soft spoken individual, but uh, mm-hmm. true gentleman, true gentleman. Yeah. Um, so the Japanese plan was initially to launch an airstrike from the carriers that you just talked about, Junyo and Ryujo, uh, on the area of Dutch Harbor. Uh, following the raid on Dutch Harbor, the Japanese were to then assault ADAC, which we'll talk br- very briefly about ADAC because really nothing really comes of ADAC, which yeah. is over 400 miles away from Dutch Harbor. So this is, again, looking at a map, this is a big area we're talking about here that that the locales are strung out all over the damn place and it's not centrally located like midway or guadalcanal or places like that so things are strung strung out Uh, additional landings on kiska and then atu which we're going to talk about heavily here in a minute would wrap the operation from the japanese perspective so from to that end the united states you know we talk about that the japanese are sending as you call it, the B team, if you will, to to the Aleutians to launch this attack and then obviously invade and capture the area. The United States, it looked like uh, on paper we had a lot of people in there, and we did. You know, and the Alaskan frontier, as they called it, for over forty five thousand men were stationed yep. in that area. Yeah. However, Alaska however, is a big area, right? Yeah, exactly. That's my point is that Alaska is huge. It's the biggest state in the union. And the vast majority of the people that the United States counted in the Alaskan frontier were on Alaska. They were in Alaska, not in the Aleutians. Um, I got the numbers here. It's uh, it's the majority of the U.S. strength lay, as I said, on the Alaskan mainland as opposed to the Aleutians. Main striking power for the United States in the area was the 11th Air Force um, that fielded 10 B-17s and 34 ancient b18 bolos which bolos. these things are yeah they're older than they're older Gosh. than sin but but <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i mean these are old airplanes weird looking airplanes that uh you know just don't see a whole lot of service hell i don't think they saw much training service after 1942 you know oddly we were using those things uh for anti-submarine patrol uh i don't ask me why but i was just looking up some of the raf bases in places like trinidad and tobago um uh, on the East Coast, they were using bolos as anti-submarine planes because we just needed eyes in the sky, you know. And it's an airframe that yeah. flies, so we'll use yeah, that. But it does. Yeah, from a from a credible air attack standpoint, no, these things are hot trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the only real fighter contingent that we have in the air area are P-40s, and there's about 90, 95 of those. Again, on the main, Alaskan mainland, not on the Aleutians. Uh, the American defensive plans, should they be attacked, which obviously they're going to be, lay in the theory that the aircraft of the 11th Air Force, and this is a major issue that we're going to talk about, the aircraft of the 11th Air Force that we just talked about would first find the enemy, locate the Japanese aircraft carriers, should they be there, and attack them, sink them, and leave the remaining surface fleet to be destroyed by the American fleet assigned as Task Force 8 under Rear Admiral Robert Theobald. Now, the problem with this plan is... If you can get aircraft in the air to find said Which, enemy, and yeah, that's, 
problem one. <laughs> That's a huge problem. And even if you can get the things in the air, can and they you, even see anything below right. the soup yeah. that is the consistent cloud cover over the Aleutian Islands? Right. So not not the world's not a, most uh, enlightened air attack plan. No. No, no. I mean, it, it would work good if this was off, you know, Florida, but but right. not not very good when you have an area that is notorious for piss poor weather. And the people that are stationed there, the flyers that are stationed there, are going to tell you, dude, I that can't fly eighty percent of the days that I'm supposed to. Right. So, yeah. so Theobald has a fairly subs yeah. sub substantial force here. He's got five heavy cruisers, thirteen destroyers, three oilers, and six submarines under his. Mm -hmm. Command. Some of these submarines are fleet submarines. They are later replaced later on in the war by old S boats that are just you know older than older right. than anything else. But regardless of this, he has a fairly fairly decent sized force up there. Um, it matched nicely on paper with anything theoretically that Yamamoto could send to the area. In theory, although minus in, aircraft carriers, of course. Right. Well, the other thing is that there is also an Aleutian support force that goes up there that is composed of Battleship Division 2. So the Japanese send Fuso, Yamashiro, Issei, and Hyuga up there. That is a quartet of 14-inch armed battle wagons. Now, these are old battle wagons, but you know, if I want to pick my odds in a surface fight between Theobald and Bat Div 2, I'm betting on Bat Div 2. Um, mm -hmm. So, anyway, yeah. for what that's yeah, worth. But, gonna... Yeah, it's going to clean their clocks. And But as you say, you know, the real, the real problem here is that there's this Japanese carrier force. And even though this is the B team, uh, you know, the B team can beat up on a group of American heavy cruisers all day long. Absolutely. Especially when they're bereft of air cover, which they're more than right. likely going to be. Yes. So prior to the Japanese invasion, uh, Nimitz and King were completely aware of Japanese intentions. And we've talked about the code breaking, and we don't need to necessarily get into that here. However, yeah. um, due to code breaking, the Americans were completely aware that the Japanese, at least at the very least, had the Aleutians in their target crosshairs. Right. Um, and I think that's Indirect. a good way to describe it. You know, we, we never have gotten the complete decryption of the Japanese battle plan for Midway and the Aleutians. And so it's important to clarify for folks that we're reading the tea leaves here. We're intercepting 10 to 15 percent of the radio traffic and then, you know, putting putting together a larger picture. So, yes, we knew that the Aleutians were in the crosshairs, but we did not know necessarily what was going to be sent up there to do the job. Right. So to that to that end, Admiral King uh, directed that additional forces, specifically B-17s and B-18s that we talked about, be moved westward so as to be able to interdict the Japanese fleet that was theoretically known to be coming towards that area. Uh, the Gray Book states, and I'm going to read this verbatim, quote, Tom Alaska Sector ADAC attached recommends that not less than 54 torpedo planes or dive bombers supported by equal number of pursuit be made available Alaska in addition to present force. Mm -hmm. He also urges the Army in Alaska to move maximum possible bombers and pursuit from Kodiak and Anchorage westward, unquote. So westward being the key thing, yeah, move your stuff yeah. up to Dutch and to the, the airfields that are around that neck of the woods. Yeah. So... King is moving, or he's instructing that, that that people be moved to that area to defend against this threat. And this is a point I want to make. But 
he knows because of the cryptanalysts and everything else that the main threat in this time period is going to be directed against Midway. So they're not they're not they're they're sending people up there, but they're not throwing the kitchen sink at Alaska or the Aleutians rather. It's almost as if they're almost conceding the fact that it's going to be taken, in my opinion. I, I, I kind of think that's right. And I, I feel like I think that's an intelligent decision that yeah. we know how desperate the situation around Midway was in terms of scraping up adequate forces to put there. Nimitz simply didn't have a lot in the rucksack that he could reach back and say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to send more up to you, Theobald. Theobald was screaming for more reinforcements and was operating also fairly cautiously as a result of the fact that he knew that the Japanese were going to have carriers and he didn't have sufficient air power. But um, from a risk management standpoint, it makes a lot more sense to focus on the one battle that is the important one that you think you may be able to win because the bottom line is if the Japanese take a couple islands up in, in the Aleutians, okay, that stinks from a propaganda standpoint. But honestly, what are they going to do with them? Yeah, so. and, and that was my point. It, or part of my point is that, you know, because it was known that the area was crap for weather, yeah. crap to resupply, you know, a, a horrible posting, which I know you want to talk about as we get through, as as we get further into this. It was that that's partially why I said that that King was almost conceding the loss of some of these a lot some of these Aleutian islands because he also figured he had to have figured how the hell are they going to keep these people in supply? Right. You know, this this is this is a horrible. This is literally you know the butthole of God's planet on the northern part of the Pacific Ocean. So right. how the hell are they going to keep how are yeah. they going to keep them in supply? And more than more more than likely they're going to wind up withering on the vine in the end anyway. Right. But as we'll see, things do change as as yes. the force goes on here. So on yeah. June the 2nd, um, U.S. recon aircraft spotted the Japanese invasion fleet some 800 miles southwest of Dutch Harbor. The 11th Air Force was alerted and prepared to strike once the Japanese came closer. However, due to the area's notoriously fickle weather, yeah, the fleet was lost in the murk and not spotted again for the remainder of the day. Right. Yeah, and this this kind of thing just happens over and over and over again. Aerial spotting uh, from an air, airplane is is just devilishly difficult to do, even in the best of weather. And uh, people have this sort of misnomer that that oh well, spotting aircraft fly very very high, you know, so you get the maximum amount of of horizon uh, or distance that you can, and that's not actually true. Most of the time, if you're doing spotting in a in a propeller plane, you're down at fifteen hundred, maybe two thousand feet, because what you want to be able to do is look out and use that straight edge of the horizon line as your mechanism for seeing things like masts and whatnot popping up. Well, it's pretty pretty darn difficult to do that in a situation where the cloud cover is socked in down, in some cases, right down to sea level or, you know, 500 feet or something like that. Um, even if there are intermittent gaps in the cloud cover, you're not going to be able to do a good job of scouting here. And this thing happens over and over and over again. We catch a glimpse of an enemy formation, and then it disappears, as you say, into the soup, and you don't see it again for a day or a two or a week. Yeah. And and this the soup, the, the soup that, that winds up screening the Japanese as they're coming in, 
is obviously a hindrance to the Americans because we can't find the damn people to attack them or do anything to them. But it's a help to the Japanese because it allows them to launch a couple of days of consecutive strikes on Dutch Harbor really without any kind of interference on the fleet itself. Now, there are fighters, yeah. American fighters that go up there and entangle with the Japanese, but the fleet itself is, is essentially is, is screened. Of course, uh, they have their own problems in that, you know, trying to launch strikes in this kind of weather is really, really difficult. And it, it makes it very difficult for them to then find Dutch Harbor and launch attacks against it. Again, we're operating in the days before Japanese radar. None of the aircraft are carrying radar. So, you know, what ability do they really have? They're doing dead reckoning navigation in heavy winds, um, you know, clawing their way through this cloud cover, trying to find this this tiny little town out there called Dutch Harbor. It, the weather definitely cuts both ways. I mean, you can imagine those Japanese pilots were cussing too. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, they were not pleased. So over the period of two days, the Japanese, actually the first strike that they send in doesn't really do anything. They're pretty much chased off by the American fighters. Yet the second day when they come in, they do 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 some significant damage to Dutch Harbor. Uh, The facilities around there, they light up a few of the oil tanks. They damage some of the wharves. They damage some of the buildings and the structures and the facilities around the harbor. So they actually do punch it in the mouth there on the second day. They hit a they hit and, a ship too there and set it on fire and uh, I believe the yeah the, the wreck of that ship actually is still in uh, one of the inlets up in Dutch even to this day they sort of towed it out mm-hmm. of the way and it eventually sank I I saw it when I was up there so yeah you're right uh, there was some damage done here during the course of that course of that raid one one interesting side note that you made that I frankly forgot about one of the aircraft that goes and this is huge later on in yeah. the war, but it's nevertheless, it's important and it happens here. One of the aircraft that goes down is an A6M piloted by a gentleman named Koga. Koga. Uh, this, this Koga. Zero, yeah. Let's talk about that, John. This is because yeah. this is huge later on. It is. So Koga um, is coming in and doing some strafing runs uh, over, over Dutch and we don't have much in the way of modern anti-aircraft uh, guns there, but there's a heck of a lot of 50 calibers uh, that are being used in that role. And uh, Koga gets hit, and it clips the oil line uh, in his engine. And there's actually a famous photograph you can see of Koga Zero streaming oil out behind it. Um, well, he knows that he is going to... Uh, his engine is going to seize up at some point when he runs out of oil. And so they had set up an emergency landing site uh, on an adjacent island called Akatan. And so the, the deal was, okay, if you get hit, bingo over to Akatan, set down there. We've got a submarine that we'll send in to, to pluck you off. So Koga goes over with two other zeros uh, with him. And starts setting down onto what looks like a field. And what he doesn't realize is that this field is actually moss and lichen uh, covering rocks. Mm-hmm. And one of the zeros that's flying shotgun, you know, at the last second sort of catches the glint of water. It's essentially a peat bog, of a, you know, a rock-laden right. peat bog. And 
but it's too late. Koga's already got his wheels down. He sets down. It's really rough. He hits some boulders and the zero um, cartwheels, you know, head over heels. And it, it he he lands uh, and snaps Koga's neck. Just he's dead instantly. And he's hanging there in the straps in the cockpit of this upside down zero. Well, the two other guys are like, we don't know if he's alive or dead. We can't see anybody crawling out of the cockpit but we don't want to strafe his plane and set him on fire if he's actually alive inside the cockpit. And so they, they leave. A month later, a PBY is just going to be doing routine patrols and happens to go over Akatan Island and looks down and like, holy crap, there's a zero down there. Well, they send uh, some people over and they recover this thing. They find the pilot, you know, dead in the cockpit. The plane is in really pretty good shape and so they load it on a ship and they take it back to the states and within you know very short order they've got it flying again so this is the first example of the world beating zero fighter which in the first you know six months of this war has just garnered this outsized reputation as being you know this this wonder weapon you know that the japanese have they can just fly rings around the americans fighters now we've actually got an example of this thing where we can take it apart and fly it and figure out what its strengths and weaknesses are. Mm. There's another myth that goes along with that, that, you know, oh, capturing the Zero was vitally important because it informed the design of the F6F Hellcat. And that's what made, you know, the F6F such a such a Zero killer. That's nonsense. The F6F uh, had either already flown in prototype form was or was shortly about to. Mm. But what it did do, again, is it allows you, if you've got this plane that you can fly around and check it out, it sort of validated what we were already starting to know, which was, yeah, this is a super maneuverable plane, but it can't deal with energy tactics, um, and it's not very heavily built. If you hit this thing, it is going to go up like right now. Yep, and and that that's the that's the main takeaway there is 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 it informed American fighter tactics, correct? Not fighter development or fighter plane development, but fighter tactics. That's that's the huge thing. There's some footage that I have that I'm going to show in this video of it of that very zero yeah. flying with American stars on it, which is kind of odd when you first see it. Yeah, but it, and and it's some of the only footage of not just Koga's or as I call it Koga Zero because it is uh, or was. Um, it's one. It's some of the only footage that's like strictly of an A6M flying. You know, you see it, and and even Japanese newsreels just seem kind of zip by or whatever, and, or in formation. They're they're just doing formation flying, but this thing's doing aerobatics, and it really, really shows the maneuverability of the Zero, which again informed American fighter tactics, not development, right. but fighter tactics. Yep. Anyway, back to the boom boom. Yep. So Japanese landings on Kiska, they do invade or they try to invade Kiska on June 6th and Atu on June 7th. When are they? I'm, let me let me start over again. Japanese landings on Kiska on June 6th and Atu on June 7th yep. go off as planned. They do invade and they pretty much meet very little to no opposition on both islands. There are people there, but the people that are there either are A, loots the 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 natives or b there's just very few whites that are there uh a couple of american soldiers and by a couple i mean literally just a handful yeah like uh, and stations worth yeah 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 and and they kind of walk ashore and they pretty much do whatever they want to do and they take those islands very very quickly however 
there are there is one specific case i believe it was uh, so on atu 1100 japanese land faced a staunch american force of 45 natives and two americans and john you had something to say about one of these americans that was captured well, there's, yeah there's a pair of american missionaries out there a couple in their 60s and you know the japanese immediately um murdered the the man and uh, then send his wife off to a POW camp on the mainland or, or in the home island. So, you know, once again, the Imperial Army and their uh, just how they're lovely to everybody that they run into uh, and their need to, you know, murder a 60 year old guy who obviously wasn't much of a threat to them. But this is this is how they roll. So, yeah. yeah. On uh, on Kiska, and this is rather funny, but it's not, but it is. Uh, on Kiska, Kiska was defended by a grand total of 12 Americans and one dog, and the dog's name was Explosion, which, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, such as it is, such as uh, it most is. Most of the, yeah, most of the Americans were taken prisoner and sent, as you were talking about just a minute ago, back to the home islands or some yeah. other locales. Um, the thing that the takeaway here, though, is the reaction of the American populace to the Aleutians or part of the Aleutians being yes. captured. This sent thunder waves through the American citizenry because, according to what the American press was saying, is that America's invaded, the United States has invaded, which, eh, you know, yeah, whatever. You know, but yeah, people absolutely freaked out at this and it leads to another extremely unfortunate episode um sort of a a smaller analog to the internment of japanese citizens in california as a result of the the invasion panic that was going on there in the early part of the war the same thing happens up in the aleutians and the result is that all of the alut um natives are pulled out of the islands lock stock and barrel are sent to internment camps in mainland alaska places like Juneau, which in many cases are abandoned fish canneries with horrible sanitation and health conditions it's it's a really dreadful episode um a really high percentage of the tribal elders end up dying uh, as a result of things like typhoid and and whatnot which is you know really bad for uh, just the the fabric of tribal society as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So it's another, you know, not glorious uh, page in uh, American history in terms of dealing with minority populations that honestly didn't need to be moved uh, mm-hmm. in, in the face of that invasion. Um, as I was saying here, when I was up there doing this TV show back in 2015, the producer had in mind that, oh, I'm going to do some sort of a, you know, kumbaya moment with some of the older Aleut natives who probably could remember this time and tell me about it, you know, and well, yeah, there are some older Aleut natives uh, that were around then, and they had no interest in singing Kumbaya because this uh, this portion of the war was incredibly painful for them uh, mm-hmm. as a result of being uprooted. One of the things that ends up happening here, too, is, you know, we're going to talk about back to this whole theme of a forgotten theater. There's thousands of Americans up in places like Dutch Harbor, and um, it becomes a backwater relatively quickly. But we're building serious fortifications in this neck of the woods. If you go up to the top of Mount Ballyhoo, which is the mountain right next to the airport, the airport is carved out of its flank. You go up to the top there, there are 
360 degree concrete mounts for 155 millimeter howitzers. There are multi-level fire control bunkers up there. So we were really digging in in anticipation of a, of a serious Japanese invasion. Well, you know, by mid-43, of course, it's pretty apparent that that's not going to happen. But now you've got thousands of American servicemen up in this god-awful climate. There's nothing to do. Uh, they're bored a lot of the time. And so, you know, what happens when you get a bunch of, you know, bored young men, you know, there's a lot of alcohol abuse. There's a lot of gambling. Uh, some of the more enterprising young ladies from the Alaskan mainland make their way up there as well. It's just, it's a mess. And what ends up happening when these native Aleuts come back home at the end of the war, they find out that their houses have all been ransacked by drunken American servicemen in the intervening few years. And that too leads to sort of the sense of bad blood that persists to this day around, you know, that portion of, of, of the war. Yeah, it's 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 an unfortunate episode that again, I'm glad you brought it up because people I guarantee you, people watching this, unless they live there or right. are from there, had Nobody no knows. earthly clue. No, yeah. nobody knows. Nobody knows. But back to the back to the shakeup of the American population on yeah. the Continental 48, you know, the fear was and it was a legitimate fear. You know, I mean, you got to remember this is June 1942. The Japanese steamroller is still trucking across the Pacific yeah. Ocean, man. They are 10 feet tall. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The I fear was is that it would be it would be a staging point for further advances down into the Alaskan mainland, which, of course, would eventually lead to attacks in Seattle and Portland and San Francisco. And I mean, which is yeah. never going to happen. Never going to happen in retrospect, but at the time, yeah, people are losing their minds. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a legitimate fear, even though it was completely irrational. Right. <laughs> it was a legitimate fear. So yeah. this leads to Admiral King having to react at some point. Uh, Admiral Nimitz is also fully aware after this is after Midway now. So let's just say let's just call this July. Right. That that you know something is going to have to be done at some point up there. It, it's going to have to be, if for no other reason but for publicity reasons, they need to kick the Japanese out of there. It is a thorn in the American side because if you look at submarine operations, say again, just say let's say August forty two until the time we go back up in there, we're constantly sending submarines up in there. Howard Gilmore. Uh, he makes his first headlines up there in, in uh, USS uh, Growler, I believe. It. Yeah, it was Growler. Mm -hmm. He goes up there. He sinks a couple of Japanese destroyers uh, off of Kiska. I mean, he, you know, yeah. so it's a it's a consistent deployment area for American submarines and vessels. And it's you know, as we've described, the weather is crap, and you know, the the, the supply situation is crap. But still, it is a thorn in the side that's going to have to eventually be pulled out yeah. uh, at some point. And the, and the same is true of the Japanese as well. They have a, a small but very busy squadron of warships up in this neck of the woods that are doing things like uh, guarding convoys that are running supplies into places like Attu and Kiska. They, too, are building relatively sophisticated fortifications. If you go to Kiska today, which you can't, um, or it's really, really tough to. Um, yeah, there are still Japanese bunkers there and tunnels and anti-aircraft revetments and the whole schmear. So they were bringing, um, you know, pretty serious weaponry in, into those islands as well to try to reinforce them. When they could. And, right. Yeah. And, and that's the key is that when they could. So 
You know, I remember when we did when we did Midway, when when you and I and Bill did Midway, you know, one of the things you brought up, which was 100% true, is that if the Japanese were to capture Midway, which they probably couldn't have done it anyway, had they done it, it would have been a real pain in the neck to keep it in supply. Yeah. And this is really no different. And frankly, probably worse, honestly, because of the weather, because of the seas and everything else around it. So true to Admiral King's initial prophecy that, you know, if they take this thing, how the hell are they going to keep it in supply? The Japanese do have significant difficulties keeping this thing in supply, as we're going to see. So let's fast forward to 1943. Um, By 43, the Aleutians had become, as you had said just a minute ago, a backwater theater for both the United States and Japan. Uh, Meager resources had been sent to the Aleutians by the Japanese, and the same could be said for the U.S. effort to disrupt Japanese intentions in the area, aside from submarine operations that I just mentioned, specifically USS Growler and USS Grunion, which was also up there that had been sunk by Japanese. Um, So it was a submarine hotbed, but that was about it until we started to actually make an effort to recapture the area. Um, Air activity. I was just going to say, there is some air activity up here. In fact, one of the the very first operational theaters for the the new P-38 is up in the Aleutians, and it's a it's a good bird uh, as a fighter up here, too, because again, it's got multiple engines, and so if you have a mechanical you know yeah. in the illusions you've got a problem baby you know and and so p38 is a is a good plane from that standpoint because even if i lose one engine i can still get home yeah, on the no. other one so there is a naval action that occurs here and we're going to skip over this because uh admiral sam cox is going to join us for an episode on commodorsky oh, yeah, but commodorsky's great yeah yeah, we're doing. He 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 pegged us and said, you know, hey, I'd like to do this one with y'all. We're like, of course, you know, absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to do an episode about Commodore Scoot with Admiral Cox here in another in another week or two. So we're going to skip over that for this particular episode yep. and jump to April 1943. Yeah. So the Allied situation in the Pacific. If you look at the grand scheme of things in April of 1943. We had things pretty much going our way. You know, there were some tough fights in the Solomons area. Obviously, you know, there's there's New Georgia that the, that's coming up soon. There's Bougainville that's going to come up soon. And there's going to be, of course, uh, you know, later on in the Central Pacific Tarot in November. But at this point, you know, we're starting to gain, we being the United States, starting to gain that momentum that is going to wind up bringing us all the way to Tokyo Bay. However, at this time, Admiral Nimitz realizes that if I'm going to recapture the illusions, now would be the time because right. we have we have the me we have the forces we got the time and let's just get this done and let's just get it done now it's almost kind of like painting your house you know you know you got to right. do it but i don't want to do it but let's just do it and get it over with right. it's one of those kind of situations <laughs> beautiful <laughs> analogy yeah it's yeah it's, it's yeah. true though so to that end uh the seventh infantry division and this is the unit that's going to do the vast majority of the ground campaign here on Attu, which is where the lion's share of the fighting takes place. The 7th Infantry Division is an untested unit. These guys are training. They've been training in the desert, typical United States Army. And yes, you know, I work for the United States Army, but I'm just going to say this is typical United States Army. These right. guys are training in the desert, in the <laughs> desert. And they're the, the unit that's grabbed and said, hey, you guys are going to the Aleutians. To the Aleutians. It makes perfect sense. So, yeah, of course. You know, yeah. it's like sending guys that are training in Mississippi to go fight, you know, in, in you know, New Guinea. You know, so right. it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's just, not going to work. It's brilliant. And yet, but you know, 
this this is the the first fight of uh, what is going to be one of the finest army units in the Pacific. Uh, you talk to John McManus, I mean, he just has nothing but good things to say about the Seventh. They really are a quality unit. But this first uh, experience with combat is going to be pretty hair raising for them. And it's pretty much that's 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 par for the course, you know, which, which we've seen so far in the Pacific War to this stage. That's par for the course. And this is nothing against the United States Army units that are fighting in the Pacific, but this kind of the way it is. You know, when they first get into combat, be they a regular army unit or a National Guard unit, what have you, they kind of run into, you know, a, a buzzsaw of of, yeah. of stuff, you know, that just yeah. and the Japanese are not easy opponents. So no, no. no. But, you know, to your point, you know, we talked about the training or lack thereof to what you were saying before we started talking about this is that you know, where the hell are you going to train for the illusions? I mean, you really would have had to have put this unit up in Alaska for months to get it acclimatized and ready to to go here. And part of the problem that the 7th is going to have is, yeah, they've been training down in, in California and they don't have the right gear. Again, this is a neck of the woods where, you know, the average temperature is 40 degrees even even in the summer you're lucky if it gets up into the 60s and it's going to be cold again at night and atu is not a friendly island um if you look at the pictures of it it is pretty much snow covered uh all year round and again a very uh harsh forbidding terrain not a not a lot of way that you can dig in here uh, it's just it's yeah. a nasty place and you know you talk about uh equipment and and uniforms and things like that you know if you look at the united states army and well just the united states military period with the exception of the u.s navy if you look at their uniform distribution of this time it was almost universally the same stuff that you see in 1945 it's you know the wool tops wool bottoms and hotter climates you can have hbt's and stuff like that overcoats but a lot of that stuff was not issued to your regular line grunts they just want like the big heavy overcoats that you see yeah there are guys that have them but by and large, they all don't. And even, you know, if you're talking about in England at this time in 1943, a lot of those guys do not have that equipment. It just hadn't been issued, distributed yeah. properly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just not, not that it's not there. Yeah. It just hadn't been issued. Right. And like galoshes, you know, things such yeah. as galoshes and shoe packs and things like that. You know, there were guys, as we'll see, that suffered horribly from trench foot. Yes. Because the, the stuff just hadn't been distributed. Yeah. Yeah. So for all that, you know, the Germans constantly get sniped at, well, why didn't they have their cold weather clothing that first winter in, you know, in the Russian front? Well, it's like, yeah, armies in general are big, unwieldy beasts and don't necessarily get the right gear to where it's needed. And and the 7th Infantry is going to suffer here as a result of exactly that same phenomenon. They're going to suffer horribly, frankly. Yeah. Um, so the American naval force that is escorting or that is supposed to escort the 7th ID to the Aleutians was a powerful, if not old, force. Now, again, much like you were saying, they send the Japanese send their B team up here to the Aleutians. We kind of do the same thing here. We're not yeah. we're not deploying USS Washington to no. escort these ships up here. You know, the, the, we are sending battle wagons. We're sending specifically the Nevada and the Pennsylvania are, are, are going up there as well as USS Idaho. So these are older pre-war battleships, 14-inch guns vessels. That yep. are, you know, as I like to say, make 21 knots, maybe with a tailwind going downhill. So right. these things, you know, are not fast ships, but they're battleships. So they do pack a wallop if yeah. necessary. Um, 
typical of the area in the days before the American landings, Attu had been rocked by 100 knot winds, blinding snow one day and clear weather the next. Yep. Uh, because of this, the landings that would take place on Attu would be touch and go weather wise and sea wise, as we're going to see. Um, you had mentioned something that Westerners had found at too. What, what was the, the, <laughs> yeah, this was back. I, I forget. I think it's in the 1700s. You know, the first Westerners ever sight this Island. They, they commented that, yeah, it was beautiful weather. Uh, you know, the one day that we actually were able to see the Island, but we still got hailed on in the middle. of it. So beautiful weather up in the Aleutians is is kind of a it it lies on a spectrum let's just put it that way so yeah yeah good point good point so the landings uh obviously the weather as I just said plays a huge part in this um it played as I said in my notes mischief with American plans and that's putting it very mildly uh D-Day was rescheduled three times because of the poor weather the Americans are in the area which also plays a part in what happens later. But the Americans are in the area, but they have to reschedule the landings no less than three times to, because of the weather to get troops ashore. Um, the seas were so high. I found this remarkable. I read this in in, um, in Morrison here. The seas were so high that the battleships that I just mentioned, Idaho, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, had to elevate their main batteries barrels so that the waves crashing over their bows would not rip the blast bags off the 14-inch rifles. That's a battleship. Can you imagine those yeah. four saps and the destroyers? Yeah, no, yeah. It's just always bad up here. Yeah. That is literally riding the vomit comet right there. Yeah. So, so on May 11th, submarines Narwhal and Nautilus, we've talked about these two boats before, Argonaut is another one. Um, these are mine-laying submarines. These are huge transport submarines, which is what they become for really the remainder of the war, those that survive. Um, they've been reconning the proposed landing beaches for five days. They sent scouts ashore on the northwestern side of Attu. Each sub sent about 100 guys ashore in rubber boats. Um Oddly enough, even though the weather is absolutely abysmal, these guys in these rubber boats make it ashore. Uh, to my knowledge, I couldn't find any notes of anybody being lost on any of these landings. And by lost, I mean being thrown overboard yeah. or rubber, rubber rafts being you know destroyed. Right. These guys get ashore, and they get ashore pretty quickly. And, and, and they go about doing their business, which, of course, is to push inland and locate and do re, uh, reconnaissance. Um, Several hours later, after the initial landings, coaxed in by USS Pennsylvania's radar, USS Kane, which is a destroyer, put a further 400 men ashore to join these very scouts that I just mentioned, who, after climbing hand over hand over rocky ledges, kind of reminiscent of New Guinea without the heat and the malaria here, yeah, camped for the night and awaited the manned landing force, which would follow shortly thereafter. So it's already showing that it's not going to be an easy hitch, right. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and uh, again, shades of, of Boonagona here. You know, the intel that they're getting is like, oh, this is going to be a walkover. We're going to be done here in a couple, three days. This operation shouldn't be bad at all. And once they get ashore, it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, the weather is terrible. The terrain is terrible. It's snowing. It's really, really cold. Um, yeah. The only people that are probably somewhat at home here is that we are using um, some Aleutian scouts in this operation. Mm -hmm. So, again, drawing analogs, you know, this is the Aleutian equivalent to 442, if you will. Yep. These are guys who have relatives who are probably interned back, you know, somewhere around Juneau 
but they're here, you know, leading our invasion forces in and trying to get them ashore. So yeah, it's it's a it's a fair amount of these guys too. I don't have the uh, I don't have the exact numbers of them, but these are the cat. Th- these are it, it's a fair fair amount of elutes that are leading these patrols, and they're acting to your point, John. They're acting as point guards. They're 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 going out the point guards. I'm not talking about basketball. They're acting as point. They're going yeah. out there and they're they're locating parts they're of the terrain that they recognize. Yeah, yeah, they're scouts yeah. is, is what they are. Um, Colonel Frank Cullen of the 7th Infantry Division's 32nd Infantry Regiment, um, is his unit is sitting in LCVPs, Higgins boats. They're sitting offshore. They're being tossed around like corks in a bathtub in this horrible, horrible sea weather. And they're being told to wait, don't land, wait, don't land, wait for the weather to clear. Cullen realizes pretty quick this weather ain't gonna clear, and my guys are barfing in their helmets. And and right. if we get ashore in the next couple of hours, these guys may be useful after you know sitting collecting themselves for a few hours. The hell yeah. with this. Let's go ashore now. And Which without is, that's the right decision, by the way. I just ab- like to say absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm remembering comments from another. A different landing with waterlogged C uh, six sailors, and yeah, one of them or uh, soldiers, and one of them saying, "Yeah, I would have fought hell itself to get off this transport. Get me onto yep. land. Yeah, get some ground under my boots, and we'll deal with it when we get there." So yeah, that's what they do, and that's exactly that's exactly what Cullen does. He lands with about fifteen hundred men, including these Alaskan scouts that we just are the Aleutian scouts that we're just that we just talked about. Uh, and they start to push inland. They actually do meet some resistance, Japanese resistance. The resistance is relatively light at this point. It gets heavier as they move in. But this, they, they kind of, they're, they're, they're pushing past the Japanese OPs. Um, how many? I do not know. I was unable to find the number, but it's relatively light resistance. They, the, the Americans landing here, Cullen's people lose about a dozen or so guys in this fight, but they do push inland and then they are starting to make their way inland albeit slowly. Um, on the southern end of Attu, men of the 17th Infantry Regiment and further men from the 32nd Infantry Regiment landed in thick fog, and by day's end, some 2,000 guys had been landed at the unfortunately named Massacre, Massacre Bay. Bay. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. and It's got to make you feel good. For the yeah. sake of our audience, you know, we, we do need to put up a map here. It's kind of hard to, to envision this all, but there are multiple landings occurring in multiple spots. And the, the problem for the Americans at this point is where are the Japanese? Because, yeah, even though there's been some occasional sniping and that sort of thing, uh, we really haven't run into any sort of uh, concentrated resistance, which is odd. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. And pre-invasion bombardment, airstrikes, but oh, and that's another we 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 neglected to mention that um along with the battleships and the cruisers and destroyers, there is an American escort carrier there called the USS Nassau. USS mm-hmm. Nassau is providing the only real air cover for these forces at this point, uh as the invasion is moving forward. So to what I was saying before, the, the Nassau's fighter planes, the F4S that are that are strafing in this area, the um Shore bombardment doesn't turn up any Japanese at all. They get yeah. no return fire whatsoever. Yeah. So it's the guy eerie. that's in, ch- yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 guy that's in charge of the Japanese here, the commanding officer, is a gentleman named uh, Colonel Yamasaki Yasuo. Uh, he had been given command of this uh, force several several months previous. He had uh, known that at some point the Americans were going to come because of the fact that at one point, American radio traffic 
you know, we always talk about Japanese or uh, I'm sorry, Americans um, uh, intercepting Japanese radio messages and things like that and further informing our plans and our operations. Well, the complete opposite of that happens here is that the Americans are yakking mm-hmm. and the Japanese intercept this and Admiral Koga informs his people, right? Yeah. Yeah, that there's that there's something shaping up here, and you need to be ready for it. I, and it's intriguing here that uh, Yasuyo um, decides that he is not going to want to defend on the waterline, which would have been sort of the doctrinaire uh, solution at this point in the Pacific War. The Japanese were very much about you know throw them back at the waterline, but I think he realizes that. His force is small enough uh, that he's likely to be up against pretty powerful opposition. And so his best course of action is to stake out some point in the interior and let the Americans come at him in really bad terrain. And that's exactly what he does. He's staked out a couple of hills uh, and he's he's up in the mountains, if you will, and basically waiting for the Americans to come at him. To your point, he's only got 2,600 guys, plus or minus. So, I mean, the, the 2,600 guys are going to fight like lions, but it's only 2,600 guys. And, right. and, and, I mean, the Americans throw overwhelming numbers at, at these. And I say overwhelming. It's it's not like we're throwing, you know, 25,000 guys up there. But, uh, yeah, we've got you know, we're two plus regiments, though. I mean, this, yeah, he's heavily outnumbered. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so... He's under no false uh, – Yamasaki is under no false illusions that reinforcements are going to arrive. Now, he had been promised for weeks that the Japanese were going – the Navy, the Imperial Navy was going to send people up there. They were going to send more supplies up there because, again, they knew that we were coming at some point yeah. in the very near future. But <laughs> Yamasaki realizes pretty quick. Yeah, I'm not getting this stuff. It's it's yeah. not going to happen, right? It's going to have to fight for one again. Yeah. So, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and we'll get to it uh, later on, actually, when we talk about uh, some of the the naval assets that the Japanese are pulling together. The Japanese are concerned about this, and they actually do eventually put together a fairly powerful fleet, uh, you know, to to come up and do the thing. But that's that is later on down the road. So, yeah, we'll get to that. So, as American forces are trying to push inland, their ultimate goal was was for each force to meet at a place called Chickagoff or, yeah, 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 right, Chickagoff Bay. There we Uh, go. This would essentially, and again, we'll show a map here. Bill, uh, by the way, for those waiting, I just got an update from Bill uh, regarding the submersible that was lost in the Titanic. He's being held onto this new show right now, and he can't get off. So. It looks like, unfortunately, Bill will not be able to join us today. So, uh, okay. Bill, we miss you. We'll see you. We'll see you next week. Yeah, but exactly. um, it, it's uh, the Americans are trying to meet at, at a place called Chickagoff Bay, and what they're thinking is this is going to happen is it's going to seal the Japanese off, and we'll show it in a map. It's going to push them up to this peninsula up here on part of the island, and basically form a pocket. And yep. the Americans are going to try and whittle this pocket down. And that's exactly what happens here. But it takes a hell of a long time. It takes yeah. a long time for us to make our way through there, so much so. Uh, you know, and this is hindrance. Uh, the American movement is hindered by a lot of things. John, we talked about the weather. You talked about the rain. Yeah. Yeah. What happens it's, when it rains, man? It makes mud, right? It makes mud, exactly. And so, and again, the terrain here is mostly volcanic ash. Um, 
very very little in the way of ground vegetation and so you know you've got erosion problems it's just the terrain is really really nasty um and the, the japanese are up in these these hills that are relatively tall you know these are several thousand you know several hundred feet i i, I haven't looked at the the topo map but when you see it in the picture i mean it's this is pretty serious relief so yes. it's yeah it's just very very difficult to even march uh, let alone put in any sort of lightning maneuvers that are going to unhinge the enemy's line. It's going to turn into a real head butting. And that's exactly what it, what it does. And, and, you know, we talked about landing infantry here, which is one thing, you know, that's a difficult process in, in and of itself, landing infantry in this water, in these seas, in this weather, the wind, what have you. Landing artillery is a, is a significantly different operation than landing human beings. Um, you got, you know, several tons of steel that you're trying to manhandle off of a landing vessel and pitching seas. It's not going to happen. Right. So the artillery support for the Americans at this stage on Attu is only naval gunfire. That's not to say we didn't have our already on shore because we did, but not a lot, not enough to support any kind of major uh, offensive strike. So right. uh, we're using naval gunfire from destroyers Phelps and the battleships Pennsylvania so much so that they begin to exhaust their magazines. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it they're, we're trying to leapfrog through these ridges and, and and lines that you were talking about, John. And and it's just it's they're provide they're proving to be a very tough nut to crack here. Yeah. Well, and, and the so, Japanese on the defensive are always a tough nut to crack. I mean, even though they are suffering terribly as a result of the the climate as well, because these are not long prepared positions. I mean, Yamasaki only shoves them back up in the hills, you know, just a few days before the invasion, but they've got enough time to at least, you know, scrape out some entrenchments and that kind of thing. And the Japanese army is always absolutely obdurate on defense. You, you, you have to kill them in order to take their positions because they're in many cases, they're just not going to retreat. And that that is, you know, par for the course here and par for the course for the rest of the Pacific War. But I mean, this is this is they're no different here than they are on, say, you know, New Guinea. It's the same kind of any place wherever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the advance on Attu had been going, as as we were just talking about, at a snail's pace. And while the Japanese defenses had been stronger than expected, uh, not counting the OPs that they overran initially, the U.S. forces had more than enough men to overwhelm the enemy positions, or so it was thought. After 48 hours, U.S. forces had only advanced 4,000 yards from the beach. Right. That is, Not frankly, much. you know, some, no, that's something you would expect on Iwo, but not expecting this on Attu. Admiral Kincaid who is in charge of the overall operation here, uh, was not pleased with the 7th Infantry Division's commanding officer, uh, commanding general, uh, Major General Albert Brown. He calls Albert Brown and says, General Brown, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Uh, Brown replied to Kincaid. It's going to take you- six, six months to take this place. <laughs> That's like, yeah. yeah, not a good answer, General. No. Um, because among other things, the, the longer that this fight is drawn out, the more weather-related casualties we are going to get. I mean, the men are already suffering from trench foot and frostbite. We got to get this fight over with. And uh, it's just, honestly, as much as I do badmouth uh, commanders that don't understand 
the local terrain characteristics. This is an example where uh, a fire needed to be lit under the commanding officer and or he needed to be replaced. And that's exactly uh, the second option is the one that Kincaid ends up taking at this point. They they sack yeah. Brown. Yeah. And when you tell your boss that oh, it's going to take me six months for an operation that's that's supposed to take, I, I believe the operation was set for three to four weeks. I could be wrong on that. But when you say six months. No, no. Yeah. Among other things, how are we going to keep you in supply for six months? We got to get this thing done. Let's go. Exactly. Get (laughs) in and get the hell out of there. So Mm -hmm. he is, as you were saying, he was immediately relieved. Oh, I say immediately within 24 hours, he's relieved. Brown's like, he's gone. Um, Things go from bad to worse the following day on May 16th when Colonel Cullen, we talked about him before 32nd Infantry, were strafed by USS Nassau's fighters. Um, you know, Cullen had laid out or he had his people lay out markers, uh, you know, for you know the line saying the front line is here. Don't shoot past here. And the fighters go back there and they strafe American positions. Uh, casualties that are inflicted are not heavy, but still, this is fratricide. This is friendly fire. This is absolutely inexcusable, frankly. And, you know, this is something that we're going to see. Frankly, it always happens. it happens all the yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, it does. And and close air support is hard. Yeah, it's and, hard, and, and I go ahead. If you don't have experienced pilots either. Um, you know, it can be extremely dangerous. And of course, friendly fire happens with artillery and mortars. I mean, this is sure. just endemic. It just—I I forget the statistics I read. I think it's as much as ten percent of casualties in some operations is friendly fire, which is inexcusable, as you say. But yeah, it happens all the time. But from a morale standpoint, yeah, there is nothing worse for an infantryman than getting strafed by your own aircraft. It it uh, uh, fuels unhappiness. Uh, it definitely deteriorates the jointness of your of your force command when your ground pounders feel like they're getting shot up by their own planes. That ain't cool. No, no, not at all. And, and, and you're going to see this continually throughout the war. It does get better as late forty four into forty five. But, you know, even at Tarawa, which is an episode, a couple episodes we're going to do here in the very near future, there were Marines that were basically, they weren't basically saying, they were. They said straight up, do not give yeah. us air support. We don't right. want it. We don't want to be shot. So it, we'll no, we don't want to be killed by our own people. Right. Yeah. Right. So to your point, John, it took Cullen's people a little while to get moving after that episode. Uh, they do start advancing again, and finally on May 17th... It's Cullen that's put in charge of the division at this point, is that right? Or when they sack Brown... Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, we have I, a new division. I don't remember and, either. And, yeah. and he does get a fire kind of lit under this force at this point, and we do start making progress uh, yeah. relatively shortly after Brown is is let go. And they do link up. The two American forces do link up, and they form that pocket around Chickagoff Bay that we were talking about earlier. That because yeah. the Japanese are slowly pulling back, and they're they're the Japanese, to their credit, are fighting an incredibly tough withdrawal. You know, they're not yeah. just getting up and moving back. They are fighting every inch of the way as they retreat back or yeah. withdraw back, is a proper term, frankly. Here, yeah. So. We, you just mentioned it just a minute ago. The Japanese had been kind of flipping and flopping as to whether or not they were going to send the combined fleet. Yeah. Not, not the B team, the A team or what yeah, was left A-team. of it. 
They've, they've actually been pulling naval units out of places like truck, moving them back to the home islands and assembling a fleet to go up there and rescue this beleaguered garrison. And yeah, this particular formation that they've put together in the home islands is nothing to sneeze at. You've got three aircraft carriers, including the Shokaku. Um, you've got three battleships, including Musashi, which is, you know, the, one of the two biggest battleships in the world. And you've got a couple of uh, Congo and Harana as well, 14-inch uh, jobs, bunch of modern heavy cruisers, et cetera, et cetera. You know, from my standpoint, uh, this is not a good matchup for the Americans. You know, I do not want to be in Pennsylvania trying to fight off Musashi with her 18-inch guns. I mean, this this could have been very, very bad news for the Americans. Uh, and obviously, too, the fact that the, the Japanese could have brought Shokaku, Junyo, and Hiyo, that's, that's a very credible naval air force as well. So... You know, the Japanese have the ability to potentially go up and, and really precipitate a naval engagement that could potentially have been favorable to them. But for whatever reason, and we don't really know, uh, I don't have a good view on what those reasons were. They, as you say, they're flip-flopping and they don't decisively act. And the the battle ends up being over before they can commit this yeah. force. And that, that's, that's what I was going to say is by the time they're like, uh, okay, fine. All right, let's go. It's over. You know, it's right. over. And, and we're we're not cutting short. We're going to get to the the over part here in just a minute. But yeah. it, it's it, to to your point, what you put in the notes. It's a real missed opportunity for the Japanese because there's no doubt that if they go up there with that size force with those yeah. vessels that you just talked about, they are going to wipe the seas clean of the old battleships. Yeah. Tennessee and Nevada and Idaho. I mean, they're, they're going to be sitting at the carrier bottom. NASA is not going to be able to fight Shokaku. I mean, it's just no. not happening. So, yeah, uh, th there was a problem here. I don't know what the status of some of the other main fleet units was at places like Pearl. I mean, conceivably, you could have hauled some other naval aviation forces out of Pearl Harbor and sent them up there. But I don't know where those carriers were at this point in time. So I, I really don't have a, a grasp of from a counterfactual standpoint, did Nimitz have anything in his backpack that he could reach for in an emergency and send on up there? But it's not, this is not anything that you can react to quickly because the Aleutians are, I forget the distance, is probably the better part of 2,000 nautical miles from yeah. uh, from Pearl Harbor up to Dutch. So it's a long way. Very, very likely by the time the Americans would have gotten, let's just say, that Nimitz yeah. is like, oh my God, and he oh and he God. sends you know Bunker Hill and Essex up there, yeah, and 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 Saratoga say, which is already a way to hell down in the South Pacific, so Sarah right. come up. But just let's just suffice to say that you, that battle in the North Pacific is going to be over, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's going to be hunting the Japanese, and they're going to be ghosts, right? So anyway, um, over the next five or six days, the seventh ID does make some progress and they push the Japanese up into that area that we were talking about. One element of the Japanese defense area is a place that the Americans wound up naming Fish Hook Ridge. And again, and we'll show a map, you'll see it. It actually looks like a fish hook. Um, and this is, you know, we always talk about Medal of Honor recipients when we can. And this one we're definitely going to talk about a gentleman named Joe Martinez. Martinez is one of the guys that is fighting in this fish hook area. Uh, he was born in Taos, Taos, New Mexico, and had been drafted into the United States Army in 1942. 
Uh, he took his basic training at Camp Roberts, California, was then assigned as an infantryman to K Company 3rd, 32nd Infantry Regiment, 7th Infantry. In K Company, Martinez was a BAR man. Uh, and if you know anything about American uh, infantry tactics in World War II, the BAR was the saw of the day. Yeah. Um, on May 25th, elements of the 32nd Infantry Regiment were heavily engaged with Japanese defenders on Fishhook Ridge. Uh, when K Company became pinned down by several well-placed Japanese machine guns, an initial assault in the area had gained some ground, but had left Martinez's K Company dangerously exposed. They were kind of hanging out there in the wind. Uh, they were exposed to not only uh, inflating Japanese machine gun fire, but theoretically a counterattack. If the Japanese wanted to push down, they could have just slid right into the side of K Company right there. So realizing that this is a problem – uh, Martinez decides to act on his own. He gets up with uh, his BAR with machine gun fire zipping all around him and his positions. And, and now Japanese mortars are dropping on K Company's positions. So it is thought that at this point the Japanese realize, oh, hey, we have an entire American company pinned down here and they yeah. are dangerously exposed. So let's lay it on them, which yeah. is what they're actually beginning to do here. Um, Martinez decides to stand up and advance alone towards these Japanese machine gun positions that are pouring fire down into his people. And by when I say his people, I'm talking about his platoon mates. He was not a squad leader of any sort. He's just a yeah. guy. A he guy. gets up. Uh, yeah. And I mean, a guy of this is a man. That's <laughs> just suffice to say, as he's moving up towards the Japanese positions, positions, he occasionally stops to fire and starts picking the Japanese off with his BAR. As he's doing this, his squad mates see that, oh, hey, look, Joe's making some ground here. They get up and they start to follow him up. This is not advancing across a parade field either. You know, you were talking about the terrain, and this terrain that he's in, that Martinez is in, is, an, is no different than the terrain that they landed in. These are craggy ridges. These are literally, he's having to climb hand over hand with his BAR slung on his back. This is not an easy advance for this man at all. He gets up to the snow-covered hill to the Japanese positions, opens fire, and eliminates one machine gun with BAR fire and hand grenades. His success inspires the men behind him who are slowly trailing him to rush up to his position. Not finished, he continues upwards, taking fire from both sides from Japanese that are now in trenches. You were talking about hastily prepared <laughs> positions. This is it. Yeah. They're in trenches. Martinez wipes out these defenders in at least two trenches by himself with his BAR, finally reaching the pass above the Japanese machine guns. As he reaches the top of the hill, he encounters one last Japanese trench, opens fire, kills several of the occupants. Unfortunately, one, at least one of those occupants, shoots uh, Martinez in the head and kills him. Um, the pass was eventually taken, and not surprisingly, Joe Martinez is awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. He is the first Latino. To mm -hmm. be awarded the Medal of Honor, not the last, but the first Latino yeah. to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Oh, that I is am. a man. Yeah, yeah. You never get tired. You know, I've said this a hundred times already, but you never get tired of, of reciting stories like that or hearing stories like that because that is just ultimate, incredible bravery and just balls of solid rock to be able to do that kind of stuff. You really have to wonder, yeah, what goes through. Yeah, the heads at the at, at that point, you know, making that decision. I'm just going to get out of my own, out from behind my rock and charge these guys. But it's it's that sort of initiative that then 
uh, allows mobility to be restored to this battlefield. You know, you've pried open that whole defensive position, and now what could have been uh, a real bad situation for your company now turns into an opportunity instead to unhinge a whole portion of that Japanese defensive line. And that is exactly what happens. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Thanks to this one guy. That's, you know, not to say that the company would have been wiped out, but they were starting to take casualties from this machine gun and mortar fire. Right. So if Martinez doesn't act when he does. Right. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Who knows? So, John, we're we're starting to get towards the end here. And this is one of the more nasty episodes of the Pacific War. And we'll get to the details of this in just a second. But by May 29th, it was clear to Japanese Colonel Yamasaki that help was certainly not on the way, that they yep. were not going to defeat this numerically superior American force. And, you know, the Americans had, again, we talked about Fishhook Ridge. They pushed the Japanese back into this, like, little soup bowl area around Atu Village. Um, these guys were – they were going to die. They, they, so, they were absolutely going to die. And yeah, Yamasaki – he had like 800 guys of the initial 2,600. So, you know, casualties hadn't been extraordinary, but when you only got 2,600 guys. Right. And this is, you know, to be honest, this is what I would call the culturally congruent method at this point in the war for a Japanese force that knows that it's going to perish to go out. And they they select the, the classic bonsai charge uh method for for doing that and it turns into one of the larger uh mm-hmm. bonsai charges in the entire war and yeah uh some pretty hair raising results as, as as a consequence so you know you say bonsai charge and in 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 most people's mind it's it's a last resort. It's just the hell with it. Let's just go and we're gonna take out everybody we can and we know we're all gonna die. And that's exactly what was here, but Yamasaki was not some stooge. He wasn't some fool. He actually had a plan. His plan was to push through. Yeah, I mean, he's going to send a human wave assault, and that's exactly what it is. He's going to send a human wave assault at the weakest point in American lines. He's going to punch through those lines. He's going to try and get to the American supply depot that he can visually see. Right. He's going to get there, gather weapons, ammunition, whatever the hell he can grab. And keep on trucking. There is no stop here because he's, again, he's not stupid. He knows that if if they break through the lines, it's going to take the Americans by surprise, but it's also not going to take them very long to surround his people and wipe them out if they stop. So his plan is right. to push through, grab supplies, grab a hold of the American artillery. They're not going to drag it off, but they're going to destroy the American artillery that is shelling them and then just keep hauling ass and go into the mountains and then play guerrilla warfare until everybody dies eventually. Right. And they're going to take out as many Americans as possible. So there is a legitimate plan to his yes. charge here. Yeah. And, and and this, you, you make a very valid point in that you, you see this over and over as well, that these are not spontaneous actions. They are always premeditated. It is some senior officer who makes the determination that, okay, this is the end. We we are shortly going to lose our unit cohesion, and therefore we are going to put together this last charge in support of objective X. And so that's that's what we're seeing here as well. Precisely. At around 0330, Yamasaki's attack smashed into the lines of B Company 32nd Infantry Regiment. They blew through 
these American positions. And I mean, like, just like blam. Stampede, yeah, just like right through. Exactly. And they're bayoneting everything in their sight. They're shooting everything in their sight. And this is a thinly held portion of the line. It's actually kind of like a hinge in a gate. And they just go right through that center part. And they just blast right through there. One section of the attack, unfortunately, needlessly slashed into an American field hospital. And this is one of the nastier episodes of the entire campaign. Yep. And they're banning we talked about patients in the beds and the whole the whole yeah. schmear because that again this is how the imperial army rolls. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we talked about is, speed. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, they just roll right through here. Um, yeah. That's gonna understandably get the Americans' dander up uh, as a result of that. But yeah, it's it's an ugly episode and. On a number of these occasions, you know, here and in places like Saipan, um, when you've been engaged in combat for the last several days in this sort of grinding, in many cases, I can barely see the enemy because they're so well dug in. And then all of a sudden, the nature of the combat just completely flips around. And now I've got this human wave coming at me. It's really tough uh, for the Americans to sort of shift mental gears into Okay, how do I how do I how do I deal with this? Um, right. And so, yeah, to your point, the uh, Yamasaki's attack just, just blows through this initial portion of the line and, and makes it into you know kind of the rear areas, field hospitals yeah. and whatnot. So it's it's a real scramble fest here for the American defenders. It is, and and, and if you look at the map that we're going to show that I'll I'll paste on the screen now, it, you know they they move a pretty fair distance and they reach. The point of Engineer Hill, which if you see the starting point of the charge to where Engineer Hill is, it's a hell of a run. I mean, you're not talking 200 yards here. I mean, these guys are moving and, and they are yeah. clearing a path as they go through. The engineers, it's called Engineer Hill for a reason. There were engineers up there. There were service troops up there. There's cooks up there. There's artillerymen up there. All of a sudden, these are rear echelon guys who are now staring <laughs> Eyeball to eyeball yeah. with hardcore Japanese infantry, and they go, Oh my god, god yeah, <laughs> grab your <laughs> carbines, grab anything you can, yeah, and it's and it's a furball, so yeah, and that's exactly what happens here. They the, the engineers and the service troops kind of tie in like a ring around the top of Engineer Hill, and they do stop the Japanese here. Um, typically, have artillery. <laughs> It does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. It does indeed. And they start picking the Japanese off one by one. And exactly as Yamasaki had predicted, because they can't move any further, American infantry is now starting to surround them. They're starting to pick them off one by one even further. The Japanese do one final bayonet. I'm sorry, uh, my, my fault. The engineers and the service troops right. do a final bayonet charge on what is left of the Japanese, which is, I mean, you know, yeah. images of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain here at Little Round Top. Right, uh, right. They do a bayonet charge and go down there and swoop and kill off what is left, in which uh, Yamasaki himself is actually killed. Right. And this is one of those episodes, too, where you, you have to wonder if uh, some of the analogous scenes that happened on Alligator Creek, where the Marines were trying to, in the aftermath of that battle, uh, render aid to wounded Japanese, and then the Japanese were killing Marine medics and that kind of thing. Um, and very quickly, the Marines had to make the mental shift to, oh, okay, actually, we just shoot and bayonet everybody, don't we? That's how the, yeah. that's how this game is played. 7th Infantry Division here is having to do exactly the same thing, because yeah. um, 
yeah, uh, the Japanese will murder you if if given the chance. And so you can't give them that chance. You just have to shoot and bayonet everybody that's that's in front of you. It's unfortunately, yeah, yeah, it is. It's nasty, but that's the way the Pacific War is fought from beginning to end. Yeah. So much. after this charge is extinguished um, by May 30th, it's essentially over uh, the yeah. fighting on Attu. There's there's mopping up here and there. But by and large, the, the fighting on Attu is over with. Um, and this it goes same thing for the Aleutians in general. It's pretty much. Yeah. Know, Chisco is going to be evacuated before it's uh, before it's invaded, and uh, uh, it's a masterful withdrawal uh, on the part of the Japanese. They are able to get that entire garrison off before the Americans are going to invade. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, the the destruction of the Atu garrison represents the end of substantial fighting within the Aleutians Islands. But it's an ugly fight, so. Go, go through the butcher's bill here. Yeah, so the American casualties for Attu are 3,289. 549 are killed. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. We put one infantry division into this fight, and, you know, rough napkin math says that uh, roughly 20% of those guys end up casualties, if not more. Mm -hmm. This is. Yeah. It's it's bloody. It, it, it is bloody, and and it's and it's something that most people don't think about when they think of the Pacific right. War. They're not thinking of the fighting on Attu, and, and they're yeah. certainly not thinking about it as a bloody ordeal. But that's exactly what it is. Yeah, uh, five hundred and forty nine are killed, eleven hundred and forty eight are wounded, twelve hundred, and this is a round number, are non battle injuries, and this is mainly this is illness and exposure. This trench is what you were talking about earlier, frostbite. John. Trench foot, frostbite, all that stuff. Yeah. And and one of the things that that I um, find amazing here, again, yeah, in terms of forgotten theater, the fighting here is absolutely savage. That if you look at the casualty ratio that the Americans inflict on the Japanese in the course of this battle, this is some of the most bitter fighting in the entire Pacific campaign. So. Typically, we would inflict casualties like places like Tinian and some of the, the easier, quote, easier fights. You would see ratios of four to one in the Americans' favor. You get into some really nasty fights. Um, you look at uh, Saipan in particular, we were inflicting casualties on Saipan and Guam at 2.1 to 1, 1.8 to 1. Those were considered very, very difficult fights. Atu is 1.7 to 1. So mm -hmm. statistically speaking, these were more difficult battles than both Saipan and Guam, uh, at least from a casualty ratio standpoint. So mm -hmm. this, was, this was bad stuff. Very, yeah. very bad stuff. Of the plus or minus 29, to your point, the, of the 2,900-ish, Japanese that were on Attu, only 28 were captured. Right. And, and again, I, I, I could grind you the numbers on that, but that is that is above average. Typically, if we yeah. go yeah. into um, a Japanese island, 
97% of the garrison would be casualties by the end, the overwhelming majority being uh, killed in action. Killed. But here is an example of a 99% casualty ratio. Uh, so again, this is a very, very difficult fight and practically unknown. Yep. And, you know, the overall impact of the Aleutians campaign for the guys who were in it was obviously life-changing. You know, for the guys of the 7th Infantry and the 28 Japanese that were captured, this is a life-changing operation. But as quickly as it enters the American and Japanese picture, it's gone. It's gone. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. After this fight is wrapped up and we've essentially recaptured all of that American territory, you know, and now this theater is going to be a backwater, and yet there are going to be garrison forces, Americans up here, you know, in many cases for the, the remainder of the war, um, and not enjoying themselves, as we've already <laughs> described. You know, this, is, this was considered very bad duty uh, to have to be uh, stuck up in Dutch Harbor, you know, manning one of these uh, artillery batteries waiting for an invasion that you and your buddies know is never going to come right yeah, yeah it, but it probably beats you know walking ashore on any we talk or someplace like that yeah, so. yeah that may be true although to an extent i i think troops in many cases would prefer to be doing something true. with uh, active and useful as opposed to just being marooned in in a backwater and having nothing to do except drink <laughs> so yeah. yeah it was a difficult yeah. duty for sure well, John, do you have anything else you want to throw in before we wrap this sucker? I, I have blathered long enough. Well, it's it's an interesting topic that that is often overlooked, uh, you know, in favor of places like Tarawa and, and Bougainville yeah. and things like that. And we felt like it needed to be covered, and yeah. and and we're we're hope we hope that uh, we informed our, our listeners and watchers as to why it needed to be covered. So. And I do hope for your sake that you do have an opportunity someday to go up to Dutch Harbor and hang out at the Norwegian Rat because uh, it's it's a thing. <laughs> so. Well, if for no other reason, I want to go so I can say that I've been to the Norwegian Rat. There you so. go. Yeah. <laughs> So with that being said, we want to thank you very much for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Also, if you want to see the video version of this, or if you already aren't watching it, uh, or any of our other episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel called Unauthorized History of the Pacific War Podcast. If you have a question, send us a com or, or comment, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. So once again, my name is Seth Paradin. I want to say thank you very much. And I'm going to also uh, say thank you for Bill, even though he was not able to join us today. John, thank you for being here. And uh, always it's a always a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. All right. We'll see you guys next week.